Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear part 10 in my series, God in the Frontier. There are only two more episodes left after this one on my book, God in the Frontier, before I switch over to my next writing piece. This is part two of chapter nine, and I'm going to really start to delve into the psychological processes that have a connection to faith, belief, and religion. Today, I'm really going to focus on what sort of universal message are we truly receiving when we worship. And I'm going to do this by referencing a lot of experts or individuals that have studied a lot of different specific areas. For example, on how our brains react to storytelling, or what exactly is an epiphany or serendipity. I'm also going to talk about well-known and well-studied cognitive processes like transference. While you listen, please understand that I'm not just giving my unsubstantiated opinion on these things. I find that there are connections to all these pieces on how our mind works and to religion. I often feel like there is no real conversation being had about our knowledge about how our mind works and our predisposition to worship. This is meant to be exploratory. It's meant to be self-reflective. Because when you listen to this episode and the remaining episodes and learn about all the different pieces of our mind that you may or may not have understood before this podcast, use this new knowledge to reflect on your own beliefs, your own behavior, and the way that you think about things. I feel like by researching this, it has helped me reflect on myself better and why I wanted to share this all with you. Now that we have the background of the Burned Over District, I have a lot of really good real-life examples that we all should be pretty familiar with now to understand. Okay, so... Just to do the little bit of housekeeping before we get into it, please like, rate, or review this podcast if you are enjoying it. It helps get the word out there. Please consider donating to No Character Limit. When you do, I offer a free PDF copy of my book, which includes a lot of pictures that help illustrate all of these things that we're talking about. So with that, I want you all to please enjoy part 10 of God in the Frontier. 
Chapter 9, Part 3, A Universal Message The lessons from the burned-over district run deeper than the mainstream orientations of evangelicalism and Calvinism. Linda Pritchard would not have been able to find any statistical significance in her study of denominations between 1850 and 1860 for any of the less common religious beliefs that were born out of the burned-over district either. The Oneida community was small by comparison, and the national and international movements that began in the areas such as Millerism and Adventism, Spiritualism, Mormonism, and Chautauquas wouldn't have been statistically significant based on Pritchard's measures. Yet, each of these movements were meaningful and impacted the country, or even the world, in their own ways. And due to this, Whitney Cross was right about their importance. But so was Pritchard when she concluded that the burned-over district was typically American, as almost none of these movements stayed confined to the area, but instead spread outward to the rest of the United States. The divisions between Calvinist predestination and evangelical self-determination goes as far back as the creation of Anabaptism in the 16th century, and even earlier. But the movements in the burned-over district fractured their own new American schisms into the prism of Christianity. While some, like the Oneida community or the Society of Universal Friends, proved not to gain traction, others, such as Mormonism and Millerism, have created lasting fissures that are deeply American, releasing a glittering array of new perspectives that claim to be just as Christian as every previous denomination's perspective, or even more so. The growing number of ways Christianity and other religions claim to define themselves do not lend to their cause of being the exclusively correct narrative to follow. These varieties of beliefs, born out of the burned-over district or any other place that proclaims their divine righteousness, begs the question of what actually constitutes a divine experience. Addressing this question seems essential for knowing where to place faith properly. For the public universal friend, the revivalist Charles Grandison Finney, and Oneida's John Humphrey Noyes, along with William Miller and Joseph Smith, it came down to sudden, impassioned experiences that could be attributed to no one less than God. None of these individuals were particularly religious before their experience, yet each of these individuals became prophets in their own right. Both Finney and Smith had their revelations deep in the woods of the frontier, suddenly overwhelmed by the Almighty, and for their part, the friend, Noise, and Miller had near-death experiences. 
in every case, it seems each person acutely felt their mortality and sought guidance in something greater than themselves. But rather than positioning themselves in some long-held belief already around the Christian prism, they formed their own new position that went far beyond the relatively subtle shades of Calvinism and Evangelicalism. The public universal friend, John Humphrey Noyes and Joseph Smith, were just the latest in a long line of leaders who believed that if only they could get far enough away from the established society that they could create a utopia. Even before them, the Puritans of New England and Quakers of Pennsylvania did just that. And how many countless prophets and followers had attempted something similar back in the Old World? Not merely just in post-Christian Europe, but anywhere that humans had developed a society and others broke off of it and moved away through divine inspiration to create the true way to live. Today, there are no more new places to go. There is no strange frontier across the sea or wilderness to set off into anymore. But that has not stopped the compulsion of some leaders to attempt to isolate a community of followers to build their own vision of utopia, sometimes with a semblance of Christianity and other times not. Jim Jones infamously started Jonestown for his religious movement of the People's Temple in the rainforest of South America, and the aforementioned Rajneeshis created their own spiritual-based community in Oregon in the 1980s. Other religions have preferred to spread out internationally instead, weaving themselves into communities around the world through exclusive and secret international organizations like Scientology or the Children of God, also known as Family International. What happened in the burned-over district of New York in the 19th century was not just typical for the United States at the time, but it is also typical of human nature regardless of time. Charismatic leaders rising up and claiming to be the hand of divine will happens with such regularity throughout history that a closer inspection of what is actually happening is warranted. What message is so essential to be communicated from a dimension beyond our own through these leaders? Shouldn't there be something about the message from these divine mediums of God, regardless of the time period, that would be spookily consistent if true? An entity with the power to create the universe and all things both on and beyond earth should also have the capability to deliver unambiguous messages to a species eager to execute his or her, or their, will. The message would provide 
irrefutable prophecies and well-documented miracles defying probabilities and physics that could not possibly get confused with the will of an individual or a cultural misinterpretation. Because if this was the case, suddenly the question of who is right and the specific message of God wouldn't have countless interpretations, but very clearly set standards with evidence. Whether it was thousands of years ago in an ancient land or in western New York in the 19th century, the messages given by a divine creator would have consistent relevance to each other and connections could be clearly pointed out, regardless of denomination. Those who seriously make the case that God has been communicating with humans this whole time are precisely the same people who directly refute the narrative of competing religious denominations that claim the exact same thing, just differently. The inconsistency of the messages are troublesome, particularly when religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all claimed to be founded on the same God. What God told Charles Grandison Finney, John Humphrey Noyes, and Joseph Smith had nearly as much consistency as what God told Abraham, Christ, or Muhammad. There are mountains of evidence proving that people are more likely to ascribe divine meaning to religious leaders, while there is no evidence that a specific deity is coherently communicating with them. Followers of organized religions come together in one place filled with existential angst and seek answers and messages from beyond the shrouds of this dimension. Sometimes that looks very much like spiritualism institutionalized. The countless spiritual and religious experiences, from everyday people to famous historical figures and prophets, do not provide insight into some sort of cohesive divine message, but instead conjures the very opposite. This is why religion has been removed from the lexicon of polite conversation, because quickly serious debates arise, irreparable divisions are torn open, and discriminatory laws are passed pitting one religious background against another. The minutiae on such topics as the physical and existential relationship between Jesus and God, the appropriate age of a baptism, and whether predestination exists, stymies the process of what to believe for the objective observer. And yet, at the very same time, says exactly nothing about how a person should live correctly. Catholics and Mormons alike will both claim to provide clarity on these tedious technicalities while simultaneously eyeing the other with suspicion countering their narrative, and cloaking themselves in secrecy and mistrust. The divine message of God delivered through organized religion resembles the vague intimations of the spirit world delivered through spiritualist mediums. Messages such as, love yourself and others, be a force for good in the world, 
You may have done bad things, but you can still do good things. Help others and be humble. Do the right thing even when times are hard. Be a part of a community that loves and supports you. These messages, regardless of who you are, are important to hear and believe, but just like the messages from the spirit world, it requires a person to internalize that message and find where it applies to them in their own life. Is this sort of personal reflection divinely wrought, or is it merely our cognitive processes in action? The story of the Jewish people being forced from Israel is a gripping tale that appeals to humanity's worst fears. Being removed from their own home against their will while surrounded by death and suffering of loved ones, and at times even forced into slavery. Emotionally investing in their struggle immediately casts the long-dead powerful civilizations who conquered them as villains. But as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam formed their collective identity from these origin stories, the lessons about the sinfulness of displacing and enslaving conquered people was lost when each found themselves in positions of power. Whether it's the Palestinians surrounded on all sides by concrete walls like a prison with military guards guarding the only way out, or whether it's the centuries-long transatlantic slave trade, each group of believers finds ways to justify the very same actions these ancient pagan empires took against the Jewish people all those many centuries ago. And in the burned-over district, the Haudenosaunee and other native nations were given the promise of peace with Christians time and again, but were repeatedly displaced and treated with derision by other Christians. Ravaged by war, disease, and colonialism, the Haudenosaunee could understand the plight of the Jews more than anyone extolling the virtues of God's divine will of giving the native land to the Christians. The Haudenosaunee were like the Ohioans and the Missourians who defended their land from the encroachment of the Mormons, rejecting the notion of divine providence outright. The Haudenosaunee also had their own beliefs and worshipped in their own way that was created from their own cultural experiences which had regularly challenged these arbitrary Christian decrees proclaiming God's will. Both sides killed for their beliefs. While the Christians prevailed, neither side ended up proving to be more true. One just proved to be more destructive than the other. While some Christians might say that God was punishing the Native Americans for worshipping the wrong way, the same logic could be applied to any religious belief that isn't in the lead. Is religion no more than a popularity contest? For Christians, Muslims, and Jews, the Israelite exile into Egypt wasn't a sign that the real God was punishing them for worshipping the wrong God, but it was instead a test of faith. To the faithful, losses and tragedies 
aren't usually interpreted as signs of punishment from God, but are tests of loyalty to what is right. And however the concept of right has been encoded into each individual person, there are times where it can be harder to follow this code than others. Were the Haudenosaunee being punished by the one true God for their ignorance? Or was their faith and willpower being tested by the Iroquois gods? Suddenly, perspective becomes king. But what is often overlooked when talking about the beliefs of any human culture, no matter how foreign, is the fact that they were worshipping rather than what they were worshipping. And there is a striking interfaith resemblance in the act of worshipping. The behavior of worship is similar, despite the messages coming out of worship by different faiths being often contradictory. So why is it that the act of worshiping a higher power has such interconnectedness while the divine messages derived from them differ so greatly? To answer this, another question should first be considered. How is it that people bootstrap on an entire worldview in such a way that it can be co-opted by millions of people, and yet it is unlike anything else seen in the animal kingdom? The answer seems to be, at the root of religion, is storytelling, a life hack that humanity has used since our inception. The messages broadcasted daily from any religion are guiding maxims weaved into parables to help us make sense of the world, a sort of Aesop's fables for adults to help preserve a way of life and a way of thinking. Adults know little more than children about what the universe actually is and what it expects from us. Even before modern religion, tribes shared their history, lessons, and beliefs through oral stories because it is a human thing to do. Storytelling has been scientifically proven to increase oxytocin and motivate people to behave cooperatively. The narratives told by religions that patch together a universal story is likely a result of this human drive to tell a story. But in context, these messages can mean very different things when two competing tribes, organizations, or nations clash against each other. It can be difficult enough to communicate with two people who are in a relationship let alone two or more entire societies. There are a myriad of psychological processes happening within our minds made to both help create our worldview and to define our roles within it. Clashing with someone who grew up with different values can sow mistrust and suspicion. While both may find protecting their families and loved ones as a top priority, what this actually looks like can be very different in two competing cultures. The common denominator between the two is that they 
both believe in protecting their families. In this way, the very animalistic instinct of protecting one's family can suddenly be defined through different value systems created by their respective societies. Yet, that same belief, like protecting one's family, can be interpreted as threatening or aggressive by another society, especially when they are claiming their god is taking your land for themselves and creating laws excluding your belief and customs. Neuroscience has found that the brain activates in similar ways when both thinking of God as well as respecting an authority figure, like a parent or a police officer. Nearly all religions require some sort of submission and obedience at their core, a recognition that God is greater than any individual person, and all who follow must submit. Trusting that a higher power is taking care of things has been scientifically proven to calm the mind. A feeling of purpose, meaning, and belonging are the results of this submission, especially in large groups who believe in the same things. Stories such as miracles, virgin births, visiting angels, and direct communication to and from God can often be believed to be more real than the irrefutable evidence of dinosaurs existing millions of years ago. Roughly half of all Christians and Americans believe in the creationist theory that brazenly states, without evidence, that humans did not evolve and that the age of the earth is only a few thousand years old. Amazingly, many people will go as far as to juggle the scientific facts and the Christian party line, so to speak, as simultaneously true in some mental superposition, even though there is only evidence to support one of those claims as true. Ironically, the laws of physics and the discoveries of science are not considered divine truths despite being written into the fabric of space-time. Instead of considering science as a modern prophet that delivers messages minimized of bias, many of the religious are willing to cling to increasingly ever-stranger fictionalized parables rather than face the complex beauty of the universe directly. Interestingly, other studies have shown that humans are predisposed to belief, a subject of study with a growing body of evidence and exploration. But even more fascinating is how the human memory and interests were shown to improve when there is a fictionalized counterintuitive element involved. In one study, people were told a story of something normal, such as a grazing cow, and something slightly counterintuitive, such as a cursing frog. People's long-term memory held the cursing frog story better than the one of the grazing cow, 
even though initially the grazing cow was the story that was better remembered under the short-term memory. What's more is that the cursing frog was more memorable than, say, a squealing, flowering brick, indicating people have a tendency to remember stories that are mostly realistic but have counterintuitive or supernatural elements within it. Religious texts almost always follow this format and strongly suggest that they are more likely reflections of human psychology impacting memory than they are as insights into the heavens. A predisposition to stories with supernatural elements, evidence that stories breed cooperative behavior, and a need for direction and belonging all point to the mind as the place to look when discussing religious belief. It's the psychological processes of all people, of all beliefs, that have consistency across cultures, rather than the plethora of divine messages delivered by them. Like with spiritualism, the divine message of all religious leaders can never be truly substantiated and the few that actually allege that there is proof to support their claim, whether it's gold plates that were seen by witnesses and returned to an angel, or modern televangelists who suddenly claim to heal the sick in front of an audience, can that actually be the desire and willingness to slip some slightly counterintuitive fiction for the satisfaction of the mind? Is it the same thing that draws an audience to a seance when a young woman donning ectoplasm coyly flirts around the room while claiming to be a spirit from another world? And is this what drove the mind of the man who defended the honor of Katie King's ghost when someone else attempted to reveal the truth by pulling off her veil and allowing her to escape into her cabinet unrevealed? In short, do we, as humans, have something in our mind that attempts to knowingly conceal the truth from ourselves? To answer that question, we have to look even closer into how the mind works and its relationship to religion. Chapter 9, Part 4, Looking Inside for God, Epiphanies and Transference The consistency in the human tendency to worship appears to demand our attention rather than the variety of messages derived from such a universal behavior. A closer look at psychological behavior related to religion can help people to understand whether their own biases are getting in the way of a bigger picture. Transference is one such psychological influencer. Humans have a well-documented tendency to redirect or transfer their feelings for one person onto another. 
This concept was both discovered and coined by Sigmund Freud when he found that his patients, both male and female, were falling in love with him. It is to his credit that Freud did not attribute these feelings from his patients as being something special about himself. A true patron of his craft, he recognized that his patients had transferred experiences and emotions from past relationships, parents, partners, etc., onto him. A person less interested in the science of human behavior might have manipulated his patients, using their transference of love as an excuse that he was someone extraordinary, perhaps even to start a religious movement. Freud's patients weren't extraordinary or unusual. They were merely typical. All people practice transference to some degree because we all only have our own past experiences to judge our current relationships by. Whether it's an abuse victim who perceives a new partner in a relationship as threatening, or a leader of a business or nation being perceived as a parental figure, transference is everywhere. The actions of a person genuinely reaching out with an olive branch of peace can be perceived as exactly what an enemy would do to trick someone into letting their guard down. Intention can quickly and easily be misinterpreted. As if our minds were tiny projector rooms, we project our own film onto the canvas of another individual because it is impossible for us to ever get inside that individual truly. We match our past experiences with the person's current actions or behavior or label, and we tell ourselves our own story about that individual, rarely acknowledging that it only demonstrates a partial understanding of their complex nature. It is the reason why so many debates can quickly devolve into character attacks. The film each individual projects onto the other are typically not color-corrected or in focus. The audio is mismatched, and the result is just a confusing and bizarre monstrosity that conveys little truth. And yet, transference and projection are active in our lives every single day to the point that our minds depend on them. Transference is also the emotional glue that binds people to a leader, according to a leading leadership psychoanalyst, Michael McCoby. Transference is an irrational motivator for followers who tend to ascribe feelings of power onto their leaders. Fear of the unknown and anxiety can activate transference in a person. The feeling one gets when they truly realize that one day they are going to die, or when they don't know how to care for their loved ones, can bring on a sort of 
existential crisis that primes people to look towards others with the hope and security that may have been provided for them by someone in their past. McCoby elaborates, quote, Another example of how transference is triggered by doubt and stress is the way people feel better just by going to see a doctor, even before the doctor has done anything for them. In large measure, this phenomenon can be explained by patient's trust, which transfers the childhood experience of being cared for by parents when sick. This type of transference makes it extremely hard for scientists to evaluate certain medications, such as mood-altering drugs. Clinical studies show, for example, that up to 30% of people respond as well to placebos, again, trust, as to antidepressants. People who volunteer for a study in hopes of finding a cure to their ailment may be especially receptive to placebos. End quote. The fact that transference can interfere with scientific studies on medicine goes to show the power that this little-known psychological phenomenon has on the human psyche. McCoby goes on to explain the power and importance of transference in an organization and leadership. Quote, in cases of multiple transferences, both the immediate boss and the CEO might be seen as father figures. But when this happens, the employee usually experiences transferences differently. Typically, he will relate to his immediate boss from the perspective of a child who is four, five, or even older but he will regard the CEO as a baby would see an earlier father figure who is distant, protective, and all-knowing, end quote. While McCoby speaks about transference in relation to business organizations, it is obvious that these same traits occur within religious organizations. In fact, there is every reason to believe they would be playing an even larger role because a religious organization is not the mere act of employment, but existential and spiritual guidance, concepts that often provoke anxiety and fear and where religious organizations claim to have the answer. The recognition that we exist in a vast, inky, celestial ocean impossibly disconnected from the rest of the universe provokes existential fear and anxiety. A religion, any religion, suddenly provides basic, predictable guidelines on behavior and outlooks that can feel comforting in the same way a patient entering a doctor's office can feel comforted before treatment. This is especially true when terrible events occur, such as wars or terrorism, leaving people fearful of the unknown. The allure of coming to the conclusion that if only everybody acted in accordance with this single faith, 
everyone would be better off is obviously a strong pull. But even the greatest mortal planners can make critical mistakes on plans far less grandiose than the creation of an unquestioned, unified, global religion. No religious denomination is free from having committed atrocities in their faith's name, atrocities that the organizations themselves admit are wrong by their own standards. Leadership studies have shown that we have childlike responses to people in charge. So, religious figures can suddenly be imbued with our own projector room of childlike transference. A priest or a pastor might take on a similar role as the immediate boss in a business, like a father figure to a school-aged child. A child that will challenge and question the rules, but often still gets in line when things become serious. But the Pope of the Catholic Church, or the President of the LDS Church, would be treated with the same awe and reverence that an infant feels when lacking constructs and language abilities to the mysterious figure that is their father. The description given by Maccabi himself, distant, protective, and all-knowing, is often exactly how many people describe God. Could God be just a mental construct of our earliest possible semblance of a protector from our infant mind? The story of spiritualism is a prime example of transference at work. Regardless of whether a person believes in such an ability as contacting a spirit realm, the story of spiritualism is rampant with obvious fraud. Despite the exposure of the Fox sisters, Florence Cook, William Hope, and many others, spiritualism has continued to persist. The willingness to trust in a stranger to do the impossible is not surprising when a person has lost someone dear. Triggered by the anguish and anxiety of how to continue life without this precious person in their lives makes a person already primed for transference. When people go to Lilydale, they have stereotypes of sibyls, prophets, witches, and fortune tellers to transfer onto the spiritualist mediums, imbuing them with supernatural ability. It is the hope that still lingers inside anyone that is told that there must be something more to this life than the peristalsis of time pushing us through the three-dimensional intestine of existence with only the obsidian maw of oblivion waiting for us at the other end. It is an irrational human belief that makes us reach out time and again, not irrational in a pejorative sense, but irrational in a very human animalistic sense. It's a desire for more when existence alone leaves us paralyzed with isolation and insignificance. But 
these divine experiences happen too frequently to all be written off as merely manipulative lies. There are also deeper needs being fulfilled during a divine experience. Elise Ballard is a writer and inspirational speaker who is dedicated to understanding epiphanies and how they change people's lives. Scientists have also studied epiphanies, but often on a much smaller scale. For example, they will look at the moment of realization when the pupils dilate when figuring out a puzzle. But Ballard's work has been more about life-changing, qualitative, and anecdotal epiphanies. Less quantitative, but insightful nonetheless. She has collected stories from around the world, and she has discovered that epiphanies do not discriminate. Everyone defines epiphany differently, but the word has its etymological origin in Greek as a divine appearance or manifestation. In Christianity, it is also a date to celebrate Jesus, but naturally, depending on the denomination of Christianity, it changes what exactly is being celebrated and even which day it's being celebrated on. Some celebrate Jesus' baptism for Epiphany, while others focus more primarily on the three Magi's visit to Christ as a child. The dictionary recognizes that the definition of an Epiphany is often associated with an experience with God or a sudden personal inspiration. They are valuable because they often affect significant meaning and change in a person's life. Many people either know a person who has had a life-changing epiphany or has had one themselves. Elise Ballard has made a public attempt to document these sorts of epiphanies to both inspire others and understand them. Her own epiphany that inspired the project involved a deeply personal conflict with an unhappy marriage and a passion to have children. For some time, she had been enduring the marriage in order to not lose the chance at having children. And without her even knowing it, she was feeling dragged down by the marriage. But a moment came for her when she realized that she could still be both a mother and not have to endure her unhappy marriage. She goes on to relay that in an instant, it felt like a huge weight had been taken off of her that she did not even know existed. Ballard's story is deeply personal to her specific situation, and yet, it is the sort of human experience that we all can relate to in our own way. Her story had a theme of not letting fear get in the way of achieving one's goal and to get creative when faced with difficult situations, a personal parable of moral and ethical guidance. When a solution to a nagging problem becomes apparent, 
it allows the person to recognize that there is another way to live and there is a direct and intentional decision to live that way. Bold solutions, such as leaving a spouse after being together for nearly 10 years, allows a person to acutely feel how different life could be for them. It takes a sustained effort and determination to change the course of a life that was already charted for different waters. So when a person finds themselves far away from where the winds would have carried them without resistance, they understand that something deeply profound had had to have happened to end up on this new, uncharted shore. Ballard demonstrates how different epiphanies can be, but also says that they can all be boiled down to a few inspirational truths about the human spirit. Because each situation is so nuanced, it often reveals how a variety of struggles create poignant moments in a person's life that brings about a passion for what makes life worth living. Despite the endless variety of life-changing epiphanies that Ballard had collected over the years, there are commonalities underneath. First, Ballard recognized that everyone who had an epiphany was in a state of listening, as she called it, being open to the message of the epiphany. She directly mentions things like walking, which is how Joseph Smith and Charles Grandison Finney came upon their epiphany with God. And while mundane actions can suddenly bring about epiphanies, she also noticed it occurred during times of crises and illnesses, just as they had for William Miller, John Humphrey Noyes, and the public universal friend. It seems that so long as a person is in an open state of seeking an answer, it allows for an epiphany to develop. Conversely, how many people remain closed to finding solutions to their problems by ignoring realities that are obviously right in front of them? If a person isn't open to listening, then they won't be open to changing. Second, Ballard recognized that there was an aspect of belief and faith in the meaning of their epiphany, an unshakable truth that has been revealed. For Ballard, it was that she knew she needed to leave her husband and dedicate her life to the things she truly loved. For Finney, it was the knowledge that he needed to leave his job and dedicate his life to God. Ballard notes that often this is not a rational decision and that there is usually no logical explanation for it, which on occasion can invite criticism and pushback from others. Ballard's final commonalities between all epiphanies regard both taking action and the serendipity that results due to the actions being taken. Merely recognizing something isn't enough. 
And epiphany only becomes truly meaningful when actions are taken and then, according to Ballard, serendipitous events seemingly occur that further reinforce the attitude that the action taken was right. Serendipity, like epiphany, is a word that evades logical reasoning. The feeling of pieces falling into place when there was no known puzzle is a feeling that is both wonderful and impossible at the same time. Yet, like an epiphany, many of us have experienced some level of serendipity in our lives that should not be discounted as fiction. Whether two people who just met suddenly feel they've known each other forever, or a piece of information that made everything seem to suddenly click, or a person suddenly giving just the right offer at just the right time. These serendipitous events happen just as frequently as epiphanies. The psychological processes of our mind at work can leave us reeling. And so, now that we know a lot about how our minds work, our predisposition to stories and how they make us feel, especially when there is some supernatural element to them, when we know about our transference and projection that we do with others, especially with people in power, and finally the impact of epiphanies and serendipity on our mind, and in our next section, we're going to see how these cognitive processes can influence new religious movements. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. 
If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.